morning. We're doing well this morning? Doing all right? Good to see a lot of you here. Well, this morning, if you're, if you're joining us for the first time, we're now in the uh, second message of a new uh, series uh, where we're studying the person of Jesus. Now, we, we always talk about Jesus here um, at church on Sundays, so it's, it's really nothing new. But we're, we're, we're studying the person of Jesus. We're, we're, we're getting a Christology of him. And um, before I, I, I tell you how we're divvying things up uh, between Pastor Bill and I, let me just ask you a question. How would you feel if I told you this morning that Jesus was here? Like physically. Not, not just spiritually, but literally physically. And maybe he was sitting next to you. Maybe you said hi to him as you were greeting one another. Now, that wouldn't be the case, even though Jesus has resurrected. But Jesus is here with us. And for some of us, that would be tremendous news. For some of us, that, that, that would be something that... As a matter of fact, we were anticipating for the rest of the week. But for other of us, uh, that might be a little bit scary. That maybe for you this morning, you're kind of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thankful that he's not in a way physically here. Maybe because you can look at the rest of the week and say, I, <laughs> I know I've come up short in many ways. Have you ever stepped into church and you just felt dirty? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about going to church and you dreading it. You stepping in and as the worship begins, you're thinking, I don't even know if I should sing these words because <laughs> I don't even know if God wants to hear my voice. Or maybe when it's time to pray and you're wondering, what am I going to pray about I mean, I haven't opened up my mouth to speak to God for, for months. Like, does, does God really want to hear my heart? Or maybe as I think of my week, it is just too dark. And I don't even want to be seen by people. Whatever your case, I want to tell you there's good news this morning. And I and many of us here are glad you've come because we have a God who is a friend of sinners. Amen? In this part, uh, two-part series where, where, um, where it's nine parts, but, but we're really sharing it. Uh, Pastor Bill is, is speaking about the, the person of Jesus, and, and, and he's taking it from uh, an up-above angle. In other words, what does the Bible tell us about the person of Christ Jesus and as he's focusing in the book of Hebrews, I'm going to be focusing more on the Gospels. And, and my perspective will be, as we focus on the person of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, my perspective will be more a theology of Jesus Christ from below. How did we see him live when he dwelled among us? How, how did he, what did he teach about? What, you know, how was his life lived out? How is his message put to action? And the reason why this is important is because if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to know him. 
I mean, we, we, we can't follow someone that we don't know. So I pray that this morning we would have a very clear view of who Jesus is, especially as a friend of sinners. You know, this, this, this very same God, as, as we were looking at last week, our, our Lord, our God, our, our very creator and heir of all things, the very radiance of God, the actual imprint and manifestation of God, this Jesus Christ is a friend for you. If you've got your Bibles open, look to Mark chapter 2. If you got it on your phone, that's cool. You'll have the glow of the Word in your face. <laughs> but Mark chapter 2, if you don't have your Bible, uh, you can use the one in front of you, or the Scripture will be shown on top two. And before we step into verses 13 through 17, now, I want us to look at a bird's eye view of what's been happening in Mark so far. Well, Mark chapter 1 uh, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that Jesus, after he uh, got baptized and, and he, was, um, he was attacked by Satan himself, the oppressor, for 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus begins his ministry, his, his full-time ministry. He's now about 30 years of age, and the first thing he does is that he shares a message, a message which is foundational and the actual thrust of everything he is and he will do. And this message is the message of the gospel of God. As a matter of fact, in verse 14 of chapter 1, he declares it this way. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And in other words, the kingdom of God is here. It's now. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what is Jesus preaching here? You know, what is this gospel of God? What is this message? Well, it's the good news regarding him, regarding Jesus himself, how he as a king is ushering in a new kingdom and he's doing it as he calls out to his lost sons and daughters. He's doing it in a way where it's active. He's, he's in their midst. And the very creator and sustainer of life who rules the earth desires to rule the hearts of men, giving them a greater purpose for living. He, he's proclaiming a kingdom where the sinful and the broken the detestable, the marginalized, those who would see themselves as plain and simply needy can come and be mended back again. Back to how it all started when he created them in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus doesn't just proclaim this gospel of God. He also shows it. As he's proclaiming and teaching, he's, we see him like in the midst of people. He, he, he's, he's walking amongst us. He's, he's putting his arm around us. He's, he's serving. He's, 
He's preaching and teaching with authority in the synagogues and healing the blind, the paralyzed, the ones who are possessed and overpowered by demons. He has authority over them. And he frees them. And so Mark is showing us prior to leading us into verse 13, this is what Jesus has come to be and do. To, to, to give a message that sets us free from oppression of self, from our very own selves, and brings us into a new kingdom where he is a better Lord. To restore things back to how the Creator intended them to bring, to bring order to disorder and to do this in the works of the hearts of people. To those who would call themselves sinners. Now, why? Well, that's because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And this friend of sinners, what type of friend is he? Well, he's a friend that engages and chooses the despised. That's the first piece of news. And that's good news. Because if you've ever felt shunned from God, if you've ever wondered, I've never been cleaned enough, Jesus says, I've come to engage you. And I'm calling you. Mark 13 through 14, let's read together. It says, and he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, what's going on here? Well, who was Levi? And what was he doing in a tax booth? Well, Levi was a tax collector. That was his profession. That was his career. He collected people's taxes for Rome. And this Rome taxation system was actually a system that was bent for exploitation. Exploitation of the people, but for the benefit of the tax collector. You see, part of, part of Levi's job was to very simply uh, collect uh, the taxes of which is the 1% of the annual income of the people. He would have to collect the poll tax, which is the tax that was collected from everyone who was alive from the ages of 12 to 65. But it was also a, a tax that he would collect, which was the ground tax. And this is where the floor would get a little bit slippery. I mean, yes, he was required to collect one-tenth of all grains, one-fifth of all wine and oil produced, and even a fish tax in places like Capernaum, which is where he practiced his career. But like I said, this is, this is where the slippery ground was, in this ground tax. Because as one who would collect taxes, he could very easily look at any road or any dock and say, I want to tax that person and that person and that shipment today, even though those places were not taxable. 
As a matter of fact, it, it was customary for tax collectors to, to just approach people on whatever road they were on, ask you to take off your bag, whatever you were carrying, look into it, and tax every single item that you were carrying. As a matter of fact, if you were carrying it on a uh, trolley or whatever, you could even get taxed for your wheels. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. And if the person would not pay, well, a collector would gladly offer you, rather than a credit card, a loan. A loan with a very hefty APR. One where if you were not able to pay it, it would just make them richer, nonetheless. So Levi was a tax collector, and this was his career. He was about working for Rome, but also in the midst of it, really working things for himself. So he was a thief. But not only was Levi a tax collector, he was a Jewish tax collector from what we read here. And we know this because of his name and because of his father, his father Alphaeus. Now, this is a big deal. And the reason why this is a big deal is because as Levi was collecting taxes, he was collecting taxes for Rome. And Rome was oppressive to the Jewish people. The system, again, was set to bring about a certain oppression to those who would not bow to Caesar or to those who did not fit the Roman way of living. Well, Levi was a thief, but he was also an oppressor of his people. And that's why Jewish tax collectors were so hated in Hebrew society. They could not serve as judges, witnesses, and court, and were completely excommunicated from the synagogues as well as their families. So even the money that they handled could not even be accepted as an offering. They were detestable, and they were the lowest of the low. But according to Mark, this is the very man that as Jesus is walking by, chooses to engage. This is the very man who, as Jesus is, is teaching and proclaiming this good news with this, this large crowd gathering around him, stops and looks at. Now, you know, we don't know what, what Matthew was, was thinking. You know, maybe he was tired of it all. Maybe he felt empty. Maybe he just felt like quitting and, 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 and hoping he would have a brand new life somehow. Or maybe he had heard of Jesus, how he was in town and, and he was healing people and he had this, this message that was changing people's lives and, and he was wanting to catch a glimpse of Jesus and, 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 and perhaps hear Jesus. But maybe he was too busy. Maybe his greedy heart got the best of him. We don't know. But whatever the case, Jesus met him, and the Scriptures tell us that he saw him. Now, this word saw means to stare. So it's not just a quick glimpse, 
But this is a staring of understanding, of perceiving. Jesus didn't give him a rabbinical rebuke. Jesus didn't look at him and give him the blind eye. Jesus didn't, didn't give him a, an eye of disapproval and disgust of how could you? No. Jesus looked at him and he said, follow me. Follow me. Luke tells us the same story in his gospel and says that what happened was that right there and then, Levi heard those words as he looked at Jesus, got up, and just followed Jesus. You know, the story is told, and maybe you've heard it before, the story is told of a, of a great marble block that was brought one day to the city of Florence in Italy. It had come from, uh, from a, very, uh, a very famous marble quarries of, of Carrara for the purpose of, of being uh, chiseled and, and turned into an Old Testament prophet. But the marble block had imperfections. It wasn't perfect. As a matter of fact, uh, the sculptor Donatello saw it. And when he saw it, he said, I can't work with this. And he walked away from it. So there it laid uh, in the cathedral yard, a, a useless block of marble. Until one day, a, a sculpture caught sight of it. And as he looked at this flawed block, he started picturing not a flawed block, but actual beauty, beauty coming from it. He saw this great picture of beauty, and so he resolved to sculpt it. He resolved to work on it, and, and he did. Day and night, for two years, the sculptor looked at this block, and, and he just kept chiseling away, chiseling away, until finally on January 25th, or 1504, the greatest artists of the day gathered to see what they would think would just be a piece, a sculpting piece. Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci and Pietro Bergoni, the teacher of Raphael, all gathered. And as the veil dropped, guess what was seen? The great piece of David's, of Michelangelo's David. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. God reminds us of these words. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, but God, the main sculpture, the creator and sustainer, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and detestable in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are. Friend, this is who Jesus is. A friend of sinner who engages and chooses to despise and makes them new. But he doesn't just do that. Jesus also embraces the company of sinners. He doesn't just call to him sinners, us. He embraces the sinner. Let's keep reading in verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. What's happening here? Jesus, Jesus had changed Levi's heart. Jesus, Jesus had, had, had touched Levi in such a way that Levi here is deciding to throw a banquet, a feast. From what we get here, uh, this, is, this is Levi putting all the stops. You know, he's saying, listen, I'm going to invite my friends. I'm going to invite those who are detestable to society, the, the sinners, the tax collectors. And I'm going to invite Jesus, and I'm going to ask them all to come and meet my new master. I mean, this is, this is what someone does who has been touched by the Redeemer. And he does that. He, you know, we know from, from back in the day in Jesus' culture that he would have pulled out these couch-like benches and carpets for his guests to recline and, 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 and eat um, at his home. You know, he would have made sure that, that enough food was, was cooked, maybe more than enough, because you never want to, you know, go hungry or you, you, you want to make sure that your guests are well satisfied. And after inviting all his friends, those who were sideline professionals of crime and prostitution, according to what the Word tells us of the day, the despised, two things begin happening. And the first thing is that Levi and his friends apparently were enjoying Jesus' company. As everybody was gathering, the scripture tells us that all were leaning and reclining. And apparently, uh, we're, we're, we begin seeing a picture of, of people who were enjoying being around Jesus. I think... I think what Mark's trying to tell us is that they were enjoying being around Jesus because Jesus enjoyed being around them. Jesus enjoyed their company. He had fully embraced them. Even though Jesus did not approve of their lifestyle, these quote-unquote sinners had never been around such a rabbi who loved them the way he was loving them. But two, maybe you caught it in verse 15. Apparently a revival had been breaking out. And maybe since he met Levi up until this banquet, we don't know if maybe a day passed or a couple of days, but a revival was starting to break out amongst the Galilean mafia. <laughs> it, it, it was being broken up and and again, we don't know how much time passed, but apparently word got around 
that this Jesus not only loved being around sinners, but was telling them too how they could have access to having a relationship with God. Something which all the religious leaders were telling them, you're too dirty for. You're too sinful. You're ceremonially unclean. You are detestable. Jesus was telling them and showing them the opposite. Now, we may be asking ourselves this morning, why would Jesus do this? I mean, if, if, if we would have stepped into that room and we would have known the culture of the day, wouldn't Jesus know that in his day eating at tax collector's house and being around other sin sinners would ceremonially make him unclean and defiled? Especially as a rabbi. And if that were the case, then wouldn't his reputation and his teaching then be discarded? Or, 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 or maybe we might ask, well, was he unaware that eating with sinners culturally implied acceptance and love towards them? That it wasn't just like a drive through I mean, back then in this culture, it was, we're going to get to know one another. We're going to share with one another. You know, Jesus eats often with unbelievers and befriends them because he's teaching us the gospel. Jesus was showing us a parabolic declaration of the gospel. What do I mean? He was basically saying, this is what the gospel looks like. This, this is a picture of what the good news of God making himself known to humanity, a humanity that has turned its back on him, that has forsaken him, and is deserving of forsaking but God in his mercy, but God in his compassion, but God in his love takes the initiative, steps into the mess, and saves. That's why Jesus said of himself, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Part of doing this was genuinely embracing and befriending sinners. The only one who had never sinned. Embracing sinners. You know, this week as I was studying for this passage, the question that God kept asking me was, Jorge, are you a genuine friend of sinners? Jorge, are, are, are you genuinely loving and befriending and investing in sinners? And, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. <laughs> um, if, if we ever get to the point where we think we're good, that's when we're, that's when we're at our worst. <laughs> that's when we're at the most dangerous spot. I've jotted down some questions which 
I've been applying to, to myself and still applying to myself, that I think can help us all process how we can become a better friend of sinners. And I'll go ahead and just, just ask them. What are some practical ways we can truly love and befriend unbelievers and others who are non-Christian who, like us, are also sinners? Can we see another image bearer of God and just love them without turning them into another project with a timetable? That if they were to never come to Christ, they would still know we care, we value them, we love them, and are still willing to be with them. Since friendships don't just happen, how can we go from being passive to cultivating with intentionality and skill true friendship? So that may mean, you know, attending birthday parties that you normally wouldn't attend, going to their home for dinner, having them over. Maybe, you know, you, you call it, you know, you can picture that well. Are there friendships that, have, that need to move away from a consumer friendship status to a God-glorifying status? Where we just live for the glory of God. And in other words, this means where people are not seen as products for my benefit, whether it be a career, an education, a romance, or as devices where if they don't turn on and come to faith, we dispose and just move on to the next. Is the reason why we're not having authentic friendships with unbelievers is because we value more being right respected, or even our image. You know, the best and true Christ-centered conversations and where I've seen lives turned around are in the fertile soil of friendships. And that's where you've seen them too. People knowing that they're loved unconditionally and accepted for who they are, not what they do, but because they're made in the image of God. As Jesus is a friend of sinners and he engages and chooses the despised, he befriends them and, and then he offers healing to the sick and needy. And this is the last point. This friend of sinners, Jesus Christ, offers healing to the sick and needy. Mark tells us that as Jesus was having dinner and conversing with Levi and all his friends, apparently there were the, the Pharisees, the, the religious folks, who I think sometimes just really can reflect us. I mean, if we're honest, you know, we, we, we can easily look at people and say, ah, oh, man, thank God I'm not as bad as them. Or, 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 or thank God that my need is, is not as great as them. Thank God I'm self-reliant. <laughs> I'm self-sufficient. I'm self, you know, we're real good at doing that in the West. <laughs> very, very independent. 
But as the Pharisees approach his disciples and apparently tell them, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? We we can't read the tone and we can't see it, but apparently there was a sense of disapproval and disgust. Why is he around all this uncleanliness and filth? Jesus hears the Pharisees and he tells them two things. He tells them something about himself and he tells them something about his purpose. Why did he come? The first thing he says is, listen, those who are well, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Basically what Jesus is saying, I've come because of outcasts. I've come because of the destitute. I am a doctor. How can I not come and visit the sick? It's common sense. If, if you're a doctor and you have the means to bring healing to someone, you bring it to them. Those who are strong help the weak. Those who have much help those who don't have much. I mean, it's common sense. But then he, he links that. He completes his answer with his purpose. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus here is speaking ironically and truthfully. The Pharisees were just as needy as the tax collectors. The only thing is that the the Pharisees weren't seeing it. The Pharisees were just as needy and just as broken These religious elites as the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the other sinners. They were blinded. They were blinded to their need. The Pharisees thought that because they did all the right things, that because they kept all 613 commands, and on top of that, traditions, and because they, 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 they kept their food and their company kosher, and because they had status, because they were able to stand in front of people and teach the law, and they had this, the, the, the role and the, and the accolades, the religious accolades, that they were the healthy, that they were the all right, that they were the ones that didn't need Jesus. But Jesus is saying, you do. You also do. It's the people who think they're righteous that Jesus says, I have nothing to say. But to those who know they have a need, to those who come with arms and hands wide open, that know that they are weak, that know that they are broken, that know that what they've been living in this life is is not fulfilling them, it's leaving them empty, and that all the dreams, that all the self-grandizement, they know and they're seeing it has left them, has left them dark, has left them lost. 
Jesus says, it's for you that I've come. It's for you. In today's day and age, we can see ourselves as very self-sufficient. We're good enough. We're strong enough. We're, 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 we're complete. I'm, 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 I don't need help. And the problem with that, with that self-sufficiency, is that there's no joy. There's no joy in being real because you always have to appear right. You always have to appear strong. You always have to appear put together. And friend, there is freedom in acknowledging that we're not. In freedom that we're all broken vessels who can only be mended. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you know how sweet it is to be mended by the arms and the hands of a creator. The very one who made you. So how good it is to be in weakness. How good it is to be needy. And that's what Jesus calls the ones in need, who need Him, who recognize that life cannot be about themselves, that it's best lived when we follow Him. I'm going to ask that we just reflect this moment, and um, if you want to close your eyes, that's fine. If you want to bow your head, that's fine too, but Whatever you need to do to reflect, is, it's okay. Um, let me just ask you this morning, you know, what, in what camp are you in? Are you well? Are you well? Are you healthy? Do you have no need for Jesus? Maybe this morning you're saying, I'm cool. I have no need. There's really no sin issue in me. Friend, you're only deceiving yourself. And it's only time before you realize that all that you're holding on to is just going to vanish. Jesus desires to help you, but as long as you're clenching your fist saying, I have enough and I am enough, there's nothing that Jesus will do for you. But this morning, if you find yourself empty, in need of Christ, where you recognize you're broken, where you recognize that you're sick inside, that you need healing, and you acknowledge your sin, <laughs> the touch of Jesus, the stare of Jesus, and the calling of Jesus is the sweetest thing you'll encounter. The Bible tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said there is no greater love than a man laid down his life for his friends. And that is exactly what he did. In his death on the cross, Jesus lost the closeness and intimacy 
with the Father that he enjoyed from eternity past. The dearness and the friendly communion he had always known with the Father and was cut off and was left alone so that you could be brought near. He was pushed out so that you could be brought in. He was stricken so that by His stripes you could be healed. He was put to death so that you could find forgiveness and a new life in Him. Jesus has risen, friend. And brother and sister, He's risen indeed. He's done all this for you. Follow Him. Follow Him. Choose to follow Him today. His call is already there. For the only thing that qualifies you and I to be daily followers of Jesus is to recognize that we are sinners in need of grace. We're being made new in His call.